The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 welcome. That's code for we have four guests today. If you want to run with the game changers, you are absolutely in the right place. Let's start out with the buzz on the street. Well, the buzz on the street is a quote from Alexander Winter Winter at placemeter.com, just the way it sounds, back from July 6, 2016. I used the quote on part one of this topic, and I think it still holds. So building a smart city, question mark, follow the money. Reminds me a little bit of a Jerry Maguire quote. Show me the money. Could have also been my opening. So let's see. In part one, a couple of weeks ago here on Game Changing Smart Cities, we talked about how smart city leaders are turning to what we call public-private partnerships, or P3s, for the resources they need. Why? Well, come on. They have to deliver municipal services, a host of them. They have to maintain and upgrade infrastructure. Everybody wants more and better and smoother and faster and more efficient and more cost-effective. And they have to make their cities attractive for the citizens, the businesses, and anybody else, tourists, uh, investors. It's a whole host of stakeholders. But cities are competing for investments, for people, for in, for money, for growth, for population, for everything today. To be smart, they need smart people. So what makes a good public-private partnership? That's what we're going to talk about today. Is it just a question of going out and saying, hey, Corporation XYZ or, or hey, Organization WXC, we want you to come in and give us some money and we'll put your name on a couple of uh, streets sponsored by or whatever to honor you give you credibility that you actually invested in something. Once you get this public-private partnership, how do you evaluate its success? Is it working for you, it, you the city leader? Is it working at all? How can you make it better? Do you need to stop and reevaluate? We're going to find out. <clears throat> Let me take a sip of water here, which I don't usually do at the top of the show. Mm. There we go. We have a great panel. They were on with us a few weeks ago. So much to talk about. We invited them back. We're going to be speaking with Andrew Mack, principal at AM Global Consulting, Jennifer Sanders, co-founder and executive director of the Dallas Innovation Alliance. Also on the panel, Gert Christen, COO of City Innovate Foundation, and rounding out is our sponsor, Marlon Zelgowitz, Global Director, Future Cities and Internet of Things at SAP. So let's kick this off with a quote that Andrew Mack has sent me this time from Steven Spielberg. Is there anybody alive who doesn't know that Steven Spielberg is a kid? He was born in 1946 as a kid to me, an American director, producer, and screenwriter, early science fiction and adventure films like Jaws, uh-huh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh-huh, E.T., the extraterrestrial. We're dipping back into the 70s and 80s here. And then he moved into more social issues 
with the color purple, Empire of the Sun, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Lincoln and Bridge of Spies. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. And now he's doing things like Jurassic Park, 1993 AI, Artificial Intelligence, and War of the Worlds. I wonder what he's going to do next. Here's the quote Andrew has selected from Steven Spielberg. When I was a kid, there was no collaboration. It's you with a camera bossing your friends around. But as an adult... Filmmaking is all about appreciating the talents of the people you surround yourself with and knowing you could never have made any of these films by yourself. Oh, what a beautiful quote. Andrew Mack, how have you been? I've been great. Just back from vacation, so thank you. I love the quote. So talk to me. We're talking about public-private partnerships. We're talking about city leadership. We're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about where is the money, follow the money. So why don't you give us the, the dotted line from the Spielberg quote to our topic, please? Sure. Well, the the quote really struck me as a good one because there's Spielberg, who's who's a larger than life character, who is able to you know to provide the world with this amazing series of not just one but a series of creative visions, right? And we know that that city leaders need to do exactly that. But the quote spoke to me because there is he's he's someone who has all this innate creativity, but he knows he can't do it by himself. He knows he needs other skills. He knows he needs other capacities. He knows, frankly, if he's made making films, he knows, he knows he needs other people to leverage other people's money, right? He's not going to do it out of his own pocket. And so all of the skills that are needed for a successful smart cities partnership are the kinds of things that you would need to launch, to both design, but also to launch and market a, um, uh, a major film. And uh, I like this idea that you have these different technical skills I also like the idea that this is partly a creative endeavor and partly a communication endeavor. It's all fine and good to have a smart city program, but you not only do you need to create something of value, but then you need to sell it to or explain it to the populace so that people pick it up. They realize that it, it, it is their own. They find themselves in it. And if you look at the different kinds of films that you mentioned, either some of them I had forgotten what Spielberg did. There are mm-hmm. different visions that you can actually see yourself in almost no matter who you are. Very interesting. Very very appropriate, actually. Uh, Andrew, before I go on and, and get Jennifer to talk about the quote she sent us, quick question for you. When I mentioned that cities are competing for population, for money, for creativity, for people to be there and help the city grow, was I on the right track that they're not just looking for investments, but they're looking to use them to attract more people who will have the interests of the city at heart and its future. Am I, am I saying the right thing? Oh, you're absolutely on the right track. I mean, if you think about it, nowadays uh, I, I, I pick on Nairobi a lot because I, I, I go there fairly frequently for work. The number of people who are flocking there to go and do and you know, the cross-pollination idea that, uh, that, that started off in places like Silicon Valley but have become big in Nairobi and have become big in you know, in, 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 in Mexico City and in, in, and places like Medellin and, and, and a number of others. These are, these are really, you know, to be hot, to attract the best talent, to attract people who are both excited and exciting, that's a huge piece of what this is all about. And I know, uh, having grown up in, in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, a big part of what a lot of smaller-sized cities in the United States are trying to do right now as they try to remake themselves in a kind of a post-industrial age how are we going to attract the buzz? How are we going to attract the people? How are we going to create that, that energy that, uh, that, that we know is, 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 is really on the critical path for success? And partnerships is a big part of that. 
Thank you, Andrew. Very good. And, and by the way, I just quickly Googled Nairobi, Nairobi Popular City, and it came up with uh, the top five cities to experience the best of Kenya, top ten top-rated tourist attractions in Nairobi, uh, major cities in Nairobi, in uh, Kenya, including Nairobi, the 10 best downtown Nairobi hotels, the best shopping in Nairobi. Nairobi City ranked among the top 20 successful cities in innovation, livability, and there capacity. Wow, listen to this. Nairobi has been ranked among the top 20 most successful cities in innovation, livability, and capacity to reinvent itself. That's the wow. That's, that's the money shot I was looking for. And here it is coming up on and, my Google and, search. And, Bonnie, if you get a chance, go take a look at a thing called the iHub, which is based in Nairobi. It's one of the innovation hubs that there are now like 90 of them all across Africa. It was one of the one of the initial ones, and it's a it's it's a place where people go and they and they you know they can meet each other, they can meet funders, they can meet, meet up with other people who know, know different parts of the innovation cycle, and they've been working very extensively with the Nairobi city government and the uh, the national government to try to build out tools for uh, you know to make the, to help modernize the state and e government and a bunch of other things that fit into a public private partnership basket. Thank you very much. Andrew, I wish you would sound a little enthusiastic. I'm only teasing you. I love the energy when you come on the show. You're just bursting to talk about this, and that's what we're looking for. Thank you. Now let's welcome our second guest. As I said, she's Jennifer Sanders, co-founder and executive director of the Dallas Innovation Alliance. And Jennifer sent us a quote from a gentleman named William Shedd, S-H-E-D-D. Let me give you a little background. 1820 to 1894. His full name was William Greenough, G-R-E. E-N-O-U-G-H, Thayer Shedd. He was an American Presbyterian theologian born in Acton, Massachusetts, and he was what they call a high Calvinist, one of the greatest systematic theologians of the American Presbyterian Church. His great work was called Dogmatic Theology at three volumes, and he served as editor of Coleridge's Complete Works. This sounds like a very interesting guy. Here's the quote Jennifer has selected. A ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. I love the quote. Jennifer Sanders, welcome back. I won't ask how you are. I know you're a little under the weather, but talk to us about Mr. Shedd's quote, please. No, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me again, Bonnie. Um, I've always loved this quote and, and just feel like it, you know, I, I, I apply it to my life personally. And when I think about cities, I think about, you know, what the primary function, right, is to support its citizens locally. And as we know that, you know, most major change happens at the local level. And so when we think about the function of cities and we think about how they operate, I think this, this quote is about, you know, not playing it safe, right? You know, you can have this beautiful, beautiful structure, but if it's not fulfilling its function and fulfilling its highest purpose, it, it's, it's just a pretty face, right? And so I think when as cities look at how they adapt to changing environments, whether natural or built, and whether that, you know, involves the residents and the different differing needs that are coming through from their residents, I mean, I think that you've, you've got to get back out on the water and start navigating, and that's why that, that quote, and you taught me something too, I'd had, I had no idea the, the full background of the author, so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Very interesting that uh, he was, he had a short pastorate in Brandon, Vermont. But listen to this, just a quickie. I know we have a lot to do here. He was successively a professor of English literature at the University of Vermont, a professor of sacred rhetoric at the Auburn the- Theological Ceremony, Seminary, then a professor of church history at Andover Theological Ceremony, Seminary, getting that one wrong. Then he was an associate pastor of the Brick Church of New York City of Sacred Literature and Systematic Theology. 
interesting at the Union mm. Theological Seminary. Very interesting guy. I think he was kind of a Renaissance man within his within his niche. The the liturgy of the church, as well as uh, theologians, as well as editing Coleridge's complete works. Thank you so much for introducing us to him, Jennifer. Pleasure to have you back. And now let's introduce Gert Kristen, who's back also COO of City Innovate Foundation. And Gert has selected a very serious quote from the Gartner Research Group. Anybody doesn't know who Gartner is? It's an American research and advisory firm uh, based in Stamford, Connecticut. It was known as Gartner Group until 2000 and then just changed its name to Gartner. And Gartner uses something called hype circles and magic quadrants for visualizations of its market analysis results. If you want to know more, just look them up. Here's the quote. 6.4 billion connected things will be in use worldwide by the end of 2016, which just passed, a 30% increase from 2015. Gert Christum, welcome back. How have you been? Yes, very good. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. Oh, delighted. Tell me about this quote. We're talking things. We're talking Internet of Things, sensors. How does this apply to our smart cities today? Yes, exactly. And and sorry if I if you feel it's uh, you know a serious a serious quote, but I, I think it's it's absolutely positive. And uh, you know, on a morning like this, uh, why not? I I found found this quote, and I was just. Uh, really surprised and, and struck by the fact that, uh, you know, 6.4 billion things connect to the Internet. That's a number so big, I, I can't even really imagine what that is. But uh, what I do realize is that, um, you know, it's almost twice as many things that use the Internet than people. Today, only uh, about three and a half billion of the world's uh, people have Internet access, so almost twice as many things. And since uh, smart cities or cities are, are uh, growing very fast, um, a lot of these things must be in cities. And, and uh, so I chose this quote because the, it means to me that, well, smart city is not some vision and some futuristic uh, to- talk, uh, actually. Things are being uh, deployed and, uh, and, uh, and used in cities and making lives better for all those that, that live there. And it's 6.4 billion things that already are in use. And I'm sure many of them are, in, in, uh, are used in cities. So cities, in a way, are getting smart. Yes, and the people in them are getting smart because they know how to get smart and how to make their city smart. I think I'm on a, on a, a Mobius strip here or, or tautology talking in circles, and we are talking smart cities. Gert, thank you so much, and welcome back. And we love serious quotes anytime. Uh, let's see. We're going to welcome our fourth panelist. She's Marlon Zelkowicz. She's the sponsor of this wonderful series. And Marlon has brought us a quote from Ban Ki-moon, a South Korean diplomat who was elected the eighth Secretary General of the United Nations from January 2007, all the way to December 2016. I think that was a very long tenure. He was a career diplomat in South Korea's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and in the UN before that, responsible for all kinds of major reforms on peacekeeping and UN employment practices. Interesting. And let's hear the quote. This is a long one, but a good one. Ban Ki-moon says, building sustainable cities and a sustainable future will need open dialogue among all branches of national, regional, and local government, and it will need the engagement of all stakeholders, including the private sector and civil society, and especially the poor and marginalized. What a beautiful quote. What a visionary. Marlon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? 
I'm delighted to be back with you and your panel. We had them all on with you a couple weeks ago, and such a big topic. We have to do part two, of course. That's a smart way to approach it. So tell me about this quote from Ban Ki-moon. Well, I think Ban Ki-moon was really onto something. A lot of what started in the initiatives around smart cities started with discussions around how do we make cities more sustainable, because there's a. it's very important to have... Um, to address the issues of uh, resilience, the possibility of uh, rapid changes in, in weather, responses to population shifts, responses to all kinds of um, things that happen in the world. And if we want to try to make cities more sustainable or smarter, it's not going to be enough just to bring together the city and some business leaders. You actually need to get people to change their behavior. You need to bring together many different stakeholders within society to make that possible. So I thought that the genius of this quote was that he recognizes that, you know, that it takes all different kinds to come together to put together a kind of a, a sustainable city that will be on a path for, you know, for generations and millennia to come. And I, I love that. So I thought, wow, I couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. Marlon, I have a question for you. I was most intrigued by the last part of the quote, private and, private sector, civil society, yes, but especially the poor and marginalized. And when we think of smart cities, as Gert was mentioning the quote from Gartner Research, 6.4 billion connected things, we don't tend to think of the poor and marginalized as people who would be connected or have the wherewithal, the, the, uh, the resources to have devices that are connected. Yes, they might cross the street and be caught on a camera or captured on a camera, but when we think of the advantages of a smart city. Um, could you just help me out with this a little bit? I, I love the well, fact that he's mentioning don't ignore them. So what are your thoughts on that? So, Well, I have a few thoughts, and I think it goes back to what Andy was talking about earlier in Kenya. You know, many people in many parts of the world, the poor and the man marginalized, they're in that unbanked sector. They don't have perhaps regular bank accounts. They may not have access to credit. They may not even have... Mm-hmm. Um, regular housing. Uh, they they can be living in shelters by the day, uh, by night, and and out on the streets by the day. And I think some of the ways in which we've seen technology help bring them in is, for example, these you know mobile applications and mobile wallets where people can send money to each other or pay with their smartphone, and they don't need to have a bank account, and they still have access to money, and they're still able to do things. And I think Kenya was an early leader in this particular market with M-Pesa. And so I believe that there are many different ways in which you can look at bringing the poor and marginalized in, but it's, it's recognizing that that's part of being a, a sustainable city. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, Marlon. And let's circle back to, we've got Andrew Mack here at the top. Andrew, I'm going to ask you a couple of personal questions. Um, well, we already know what your favorite city is, but I'm going to ask you, where are you today? And what's in your cup? What are you drinking that powers you, Andrew Mack? Gives you all that zest and that verve and that excitement about this topic. And if you're drinking something that's eh, just kind of blah, tell me what you'd rather be drinking that energizes you. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, I'm in Washington, D.C. today. I'm just back from a uh, couple of days in Mexico. And uh, with that in mind, I, I will not tell you what I'm drinking now, which is coffee. I'll tell you what I was drinking yesterday, which is, uh, which is margaritas, which I highly recommend. Margarita. You have a favorite, a favorite <laughs> style of margarita? Come on, what's I, in it? What's I'm your a, favorite? I, I actually, I'm actually a pretty, pretty big tequila fan. And uh, the one that we're drinking a lot these days is... Um, is Eradura Reposado, which is a nice Mexican tequila. 
easy for you to say. Thank you very much. I like that. Just trips off the tongue. Appreciate that. We'll be thinking of you at 5 o'clock today. You know, Andrew, it's happy hour somewhere all the time in the world. You know that. But but you're in Washington, D.C., and it's not yet. So let's move on. Jennifer Sanders, where are you calling from, and what are you drinking today? Hello, hello. I'm calling from Dallas, Texas, and I am actually, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm getting over a bit of a sinus bug, so I am drinking Shakeology, which is a kind of a protein nutrient shake that that keeps me moving. And what what flavor is it? Tell me a little bit more. Sure. No, I, my favorite is the vanilla, and I add some almond butter, so it, it gets close to to a little bit of a peanut butter milkshake. It's actually delightful. Sounds delicious. Shakeology. There is an official site if you're looking for it, anybody. Uh, it's S-H-A-K-E-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. And they have a phone number full of vitamins, superfoods, lose weight, gain health, all kinds of how does Shakeology compare? How does it really work? Uh, Idealshape.com features at Shakeology.com. They have it. Very interesting. Thank you for the introduction. And I think it's helping your throat feel better. I can hear it already. Thank you, Jennifer. And Gert Christian, where are you today? Uh, I'm for for our call. I'm I'm at home in San Francisco, and right after this, I will take take my bag and uh, go to the airport to fly to to Denver uh, to attend a conference uh, on smart cities. And uh, incidentally, with our topic, it's called smart cities and money. Check them out. It's uh, going to be very interesting interesting two days, I'm sure. Wow, very interesting. And what are you drinking before you're on your way to the conference? I'm I'm drinking uh, coffee from the same machine as you have, the same red little coffee machine. I'm enjoying a, a nice, mm. nice, uh, nice cappuccino here. You remembered my red coffee machine. You're so good. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> Thank you. I like that, Gert. I knew I liked you. And Marlon, where art thou? And what are you drinking today? Or what would you rather be drinking? I'm in Washington, D.C., just back from uh, from Europe. Washington's weather, much nicer, but I'm drinking a honey ginger lemon tisane. It's nice and spicy, gingery, warm, and uh, probably would be good for Jennifer today, I think. It was I wonderful bet. picking up a cold. Them up. <laughs> and, and what was the last word? of What, what did you call it? A caisson? A or tisane. I don't know how you oh, quite tisane. pronounce that. It's, it's like a tea, only it has no caffeine, so it can't really be a tea. So I guess you have to call it a tisane or something, like an herbal tea. I see. Yes, Wikipedia, herbal and fruit teas. Herbal teas, much less commonly called herb teas or tisane. Are, and fruit teas are beverages made from the infusion or decoction of herbs, spices, and fruit. Okay, it's a technical term of an herbal tea, beverage that's steep like tea without containing any caffeine. Very interesting. Thank you. Wow, I learned a lot from everybody. Guess what? We are talking again today, big topic, continuing it, public-private partnerships, P3s, keys to a smart city. It's a big topic because we're talking about leadership. We're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about show me the money, find me the money, follow the money. How can city leaders grow their smart cities, attract the right kinds of people and businesses to come in, reinvent, as Nairobi is so well known for doing, and continue to fund what's needed to make this all happen. It's a little bit of a circuitous reasoning here. So we're going to take a deeper dive right after the break into public-private partnerships. We'll redefine them, and then we'll talk about where we need to help our cities go to grow. We're speaking today with four experts on this topic. We have Andrew Mack, Principal of AM Global Consulting, Jennifer Sanders, Co-Founder and Executive Director of the Dallas 
Plus Innovation Alliance. She knows what she's talking about. Also, Gert Christen, COO of City Innovate Foundation, another organization right on the money, what we're talking about. And the lady who puts us all together, Marlon Zelkowitz, Global Director of Future Cities and Internet of Things. There's our connectivity at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to still be me after the break. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You know what's coming. Kevin out. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly city and local government leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as increased citizen and business demands for digital services, a growing variety of digital devices and sensors causing a data deluge, and increased volatility in politics and environment, coupled with constrained resources. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Game-changing smart cities of the future is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You're listening to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future. We are. We're talking about the keys to a smart city, public-private partnerships, P3s. Let's get started on a roundtable. We're going to kick it off with Andrew Mack at AM Global Consulting. Andrew has a couple of, a lot of very interesting things to say, but I'm going to pick on two statements from his notes before the show, and then he'll run with it. Then we will invite Jennifer and Gert and Marlon to chime in. So first of all, Andrew says partnerships are not the next be- next big thing. They are the now thing, and they're everywhere. Let's just use that as a foundational statement. And then he adds, we have moved out of the data age and into the next economy, one defined by networks and above all, trust. When you choose someone to partner with and your ability to partner will be defined, will define your success in the next hundred years, whom you choose to partner with. Andrew, why don't you put this all together, tie it up, give us a couple of statements, and then we'll add the rest of the panel to this thought part. Sure. Sounds, sounds fine, Bonnie. Um, when we talk about partnerships, we oftentimes, I remember being at a program of the World Bank of about a year ago and seeing some of the discourse that was going on, I thought to myself, wow, these are things that, are, that we, were start, we were starting to talk about 10, 15 years ago. It really has evolved to the point where partnerships are part of everybody's conversation. It used to be we were much more in our stovepipes. We were much more thinking about government providing government goods and private sector linked to government but providing private sector goods. And nowadays we're, we're thinking well beyond that. We're also thinking well beyond just private sector and government. Uh, we're thinking about networks that include NGOs, that include groups of citizens, that include uh, you know, social media, and, and a bunch of other different ways of bringing people together. So, so partnerships very much are the now thing. As we look around the world and we think about the attitudes towards government, especially in recent months, 
there's also a lot of real question about what is government for, what is, a lot of people are saying we want a smaller government, we want a more minimal sense of government, and yet everyone wants the goods that government has historically provided. And not only do they want them, they want them better, they want them more modern, they want them faster, they want them more, more, more adaptable and responsive to the needs of citizens. And so that means that you're going to have to bring more people to the, to the table. Um, when I say we're moving out of the data age and into the next economy, and that that economy is about trust, it flows right into this idea. You've got more people at the table, who you're going to be at the table with. How are you going to explain the choices that you make and the alliances that you make? They're kind of our public alliances, public-facing alliances. You need to choose your partners really well. You need to choose people who are aligned with you philosophically, but, you, but also that provide things that, 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 that you don't have. And uh, makes me think a little bit about a, uh, an example that uh, we, one of the big partnerships we worked on in Nigeria on road safety, where we had corporate partners, government partners, big donors, and the goal was to figure out, number one, what were the skills that were met missing in all of these different things? How do we, do we have a common desire to work together? Where are we all leaving money on the table? What can we all contribute in? And then once we have this kind of general sense of the, of the problem that we're trying to solve, how can we get all of ourselves connected in a way that is simple to, simple to operate and that gets real resu- results from people that we can communicate? So we had to create that level of trust we had to dive into something that is that is that is that was going to be obvious to the people, and then keep going on it. Thank you very much, Andrew. Let's get Jennifer Sanders' point of view from the Dallas Innovation Alliance. Jennifer, agree or disagree with what Andrew said? Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think there was there was so much in there in your response, Andrew. Thank you for that. I think, you know, what 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 came most to mind is you know is is the approach that DIA tried to take and some other projects that that we've seen be really successful in Dallas, particularly, and that that all really does cross from you know residents to NGOs to the technical experts to other teams. There's there's actually a, a project ongoing between the Trust for Public Land and an organization called BC Workshop here in Dallas, which is um, building better communities through data. And so, you know, when we think about something that, that feels as analog is where does where do we put green space into our cities? You know, the first thing that, that they decided to do was, you know, really involved uh, GIS mapping of a number of layers and types of fauna and and pulling that data and technology and into how do you make the better decisions as to where where the green deserts are, which feels intuitive, but the, the areas that they are finding are a bit different than constituents and, and city council may have may have thought. And so, you know, how it comes down to how do we bring the right people to the table, understand the need, understand who's already doing the work in those areas, and, and then utilize the data to make to make better decisions than we could have 20, 30, 40 years ago. Thank you, Jennifer. Jennifer, by the way, you sound so clear and so sharp. I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better. You sound terrific. Really, really. Okay. Um, Gert Christian, City Innovate Foundation. Gert, thoughts, please. We've got some good discussion points here. Yes, and I uh, completely agree with what Jennifer said, uh, just said, so that the world is more networked now, and that also means that uh, no, often a problem cannot be solved anymore, but by one party alone, and their uh, public-private partnerships are, are ideal uh, vehicles to, to do that because when everybody comes together and done right, then, then very concrete solutions can actually be deployed now that make more cities more livable 
for residents and more manageable for, for city administrators and at the same time creating business for private companies. And, and one such example I'd like to, to describe is uh, the, the transportation improvement initiative that is underway in Miami-Dade County, where mm-hmm. uh, the, the existing ticketing system is being upgraded so it can interface with the newer types of transport services, uh, such as Lyft and Uber and car share, bike share systems. That project in which... Uh, our organization is, uh, is uh, heavily involved, could not have been done by the city alone or it could not have done by the taxi companies alone. It really needed everyone to come to the table and address the issues from all the different uh, angles. Uh, but by linking the, the existing transit system with these more smartphone-based newer solutions, the benefits will be, will be fantastic and, and enormous and, and it will allow... Uh, to, to move many more people around in Miami-Dade County as, as this uh, metropolitan region without uh, the public, uh, the cities and county having to, to, to always buy more buses and always put in more rail lights simply by linking together and ma- mixing and matching what's already there. So that's an example of what can be achieved only with public-private partnerships and it can be done today. Thank you very much, Gerd. I love the optimism. And uh, and, uh, Marlon, let's get you in on this. Thoughts, please. Well, thanks to Andrew, Jennifer, and Gert for their thoughts. You know, we can use, whether we're talking about use cases around mobility um, in cities, uh, as Gert said, or transportation in Africa or green spaces, it's bringing together all these different stakeholders and different parts of of society, whether to bring about this real positive benefits for the citizens and for this government and for the people. So, and this ability to use data to gain insights to come to decisions that are, that will, that might not have been the decision that you would have come to initially is just, uh, it's, it's really amazing to think about how we're using technology in new and different ways to move cities and to move uh, also small regional local government in a new direction that benefits everyone. Exciting. Thank, thank you very much. It is exciting. Andrew, I'm just going to give you, I won't say time to rebut, but just to wrap up. You had some good comments from your co-panelists before I move on to some notes from Jennifer. So, Andrew, what's on your mind? Um, well, first of all, I mean, these, are, these are great comments, and I, I agree with them all. I, I think that's one of the things that jumps out in my mind that we, 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 we talk and we tend to think of, of the challenges around money being that we're, we're always looking for money, right? We're always looking for additional budget. Can we do this? Are, are we in a time of shrinking resources as cities and things like that? And I'd just like to throw out one thing for, part, for the rest, next part of our conversation, which is around the idea that we flip that and think of ourselves as being uh, the unlockers of trapped money. Uh, our data has value. Our preferences have value. Uh, that, that if we can figure out ways to capture that, and the city, cities certainly are, are in a position right now where they are sitting on top of a lot of data, uh, if we, we, can, we can perhaps change the narrative in such a way that it'll, it will really allow cities to, to, you know, to, to drive their own futures a little bit more and to do more experimenting with what is effectively their own money. And uh, I, I'm, hoping that, I'm hoping that we stop seeing this as a zero-sum game where you know, the, the education department needs to be hollowed out if we want to build a, uh, bike lanes and instead to see this as, a, as what it is, which I think is, a, is, is less, of a data, less of a desert and, and more, of, more of an oasis, if nothing else. 
I like that. I like I that picture. Add, it's, it's like data as an asset. So if if cities mm-hmm. can start viewing data as an asset, then they can think about how they can how they can use that to benefit all of the the different parts of the people of the city. And that gets back to a, a comment we made in the first session, which is around monetizing data. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not going to go into it. I don't think we have time to touch today upon privacy issues, but that certainly might be something we might touch on later on in your series, Marlon, about the issue of who owns the data, who has access to We know who's getting access to it, but who owns the data? And the question of if people are going to move to smart cities, is there a concern about how much data will be encouraged or pulled from them in the course of their daily lives or their business life, and what will happen to that data? I think that, that's a completely other topic. Jennifer, I'm looking at your notes here and here's a, a very dramatic statement I think we'll touch upon and remember to the whole panel please remember we want to talk about how to evaluate the success of public private partnerships I want to make sure we give that give that guidance or those insights uh, that thought leadership to our audience Jennifer says cities are overwhelmed with the concept of boiling the ocean regarding new technology and departmental education and taking a phased approach is critical so Jennifer let's talk about this and tie it back to our partnerships okay no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think you know what what I'm hearing from other cities, and um, and and certainly have seen to an extent in Dallas, is everyone is 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 thrilled about you know smart cities can can appear to be kind of the, the the new shiny object, right? But how do you bring that down into practice, and how do you begin to execute on these pieces? And when you think about you know Dallas as a, from a from a pure geographic size perspective, in terms of sprawl, in terms of you know the the number of miles of, of you know we have the longest light rail system in the country, we've got more highways than I could possibly count for you right now. But when we think about how do you impact infrastructure at a large scale, how do you you know to Marlon's point, how do you look at equity issues? And you know Dallas has you know I think is the, the third fastest growing metro in the country, but we also have a, a rapidly um, increasing economic divide. And so how do you make sure that you're pulling everyone along with you and these are issues that um that, that certainly take more more than than one entity to solve and, and certainly take multiple phases so how do you bring enough uh, informed results to make educated decisions on how you scale these in a broader sense and that's why we really feel like that multi-phased approach in taking on these pilot programs is so important and um, we, we feel like the ability to to extrapolate results from what we're learning in, in our, our living lab, our, our first phase, will help to make those more informed decisions. So, you know, when you have early data and not just knowing how things worked um, across the world, but down in, into, into your unique environment in your city, and then look at the tools at your, at your disposal for how you broaden that and who it's going to impact, I think it makes it far more palatable when we talk about, you know, a 10-block a, a radius versus, you know, the, the thousands of miles um, that, that encompass that. So I think it's making it um, certainly more manageable from my perspective in terms of running that pilot, right? We want to be able to test a number of different technologies in a confined space and look at not just how does each technology work in a vacuum, but really how can these technologies work together to, to work against the KPIs that we're studying, for example, you know, we know that better lighting, you know, improves public safety, but if we look at lighting, um, can, you know, connected to connectivity and better waste management, are we also impacting some other kind of quality of life issues that are happening in the city and how can those projects be deployed in tandem and also, I would say, across department and across department budget. So when we look at, at, at deploying these technologies, how can that be a shared resource and a shared benefit, not just um, geographically but across city departments? 
Thank you very much, Jennifer. Let's get Gert Christian to chime in on this. Gert, talk to us. City Innovate Foundation. Agree or disagree? I, I completely agree with uh, what Jennifer just said. And, uh, you know, this smallifying a problem, uh, splitting it up into several phases, as Jennifer said, or several small initiatives, uh, that's a, a very standard way today, thank God, to uh, to implement projects. And it, 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 the way products and software and so on are developed, this more iterative way of proceeding, it actually matches perfectly with this type type of approach and also with this type of approach. And then to link to, to data, it's, it's uh, often a question, where should the city even start? Is it, okay, let's not boil the ocean, but uh, let's choose wisely and let's choose wisely uh, where, where we want to start with single projects, but ensuring that, you know, there's a path forward to scaling those projects up up and out to, to other cities and more residents and and so on. So I completely agree with what uh, Jennifer said, and, uh, and there's methodology now, you know, um, to for cities to, to decide what should we do, where should we do it, what is the right pilot or the right technology, uh, or what is the right service for residents that we should start with. That's where data can help. That's where data can help to build this capacity in city administrations to agree on a strategy and, and uh, on then breaking it down into projects where where to start and in what stages to proceed. And data can also help to, to, to build the political will to prove we are going to do this in, in, that, um, in that park or that uh, area of our, of our city because that's where it's going to have the biggest impact. And then because uh, this the data-driven policy making, uh, which I hear very often uh, nowadays, uh, is, is possible now. And, uh, you know, start, uh, put your money where your mouth is. And uh, data is a good way to do it. And it will result in building the political will, but also to reach out to community, to communities and involve them in those pilot projects. That's something that I feel is very, very important to also get early on the buy-in from the communities who will, at the end of the day, actually get to use that new solution. I love it. Very encouraging. Uh, Marlon, love to get your thoughts on this. No, I, I think I don't think I can add much more to what's already been said so eloquently by both Jennifer and, and Gert. There's just uh, many different projects out there. But I, I do want to add that maybe what we're also talking about is the need for some kind of integration or a platform uh, so that you can reuse some pieces of what you put in place for your smart city. Just food for thought. Thank you very <laughs> much. Yeah, go ahead. Just, oh, just Andrew. Just on this. I, I yeah. think that this is Andrew. Yes, I think I think that that, that uh, I'd, I'd like to, to to really subscribe to one of the things that Gert suggested, which is that this idea of creating small projects that that you can try and that you can get community feedback on, I think, is really important. One of the biggest challenges we face is, is that our budgeting. Uh, Jennifer mentioned that you know try to try to work across budget line items. I think this is a big challenge because. When it comes down to it, there are an awful lot of people who are interested in solving these problems. Uh, a, big, a big challenge oftentimes is just getting things approved and getting through municipal budgets and getting through corporate budgets. If you, if you think about it, part of the challenge that we face is a mismatch in terms of time. If we're trying to go public and private, private sector tends to think of things in three-month segments or, or even less. 
government tends to think in terms of annual budget cycles or sometimes even more. And so trying to find a way of communicating uh, uh, small chunks of projects that we can work on together or the chunk, larger projects that can be divided up into smaller bits, uh, that's a real challenge, but I think it's, it's a real opportunity as well. Thank oh, you I very much. Do you mind if I jump yeah, in real quick? Monica? No, please do. This is great. Go ahead, Jennifer. No, I mean, Andrew brings up such a, a vital point and, and Gerd as well, and that's, that's around, you know, needing to find new ways to handle procurement would be a, would be a key, you know, a key challenge for cities. And we're, um, I'm, I'm starting to hear of cities in the U.S. starting to take a fresh look at how they, how they, um, how they approach procurement. Because to your point, yes, procurement cycles can take 18 months when you want that project in the ground. And sometimes technologies have already advanced by the time a project is approved let alone finding ways to to creatively fund across departments. And we're actually putting together um, a, a conference called the Smart Texas Revolution in April, and, and one of the main sessions that I'm most excited about is bringing together minds from across the country that are, that are trying to take a fresh look at how we handle procurement at both the city and regional level. And I, I think that that's going to be a crucial uh, problem to solve for in terms of the agility of city and ability of cities to, to really implement these projects. Jennifer, Jennifer, I think you're really onto something. This is Marlon. I just, I, that's mm-hmm. brilliantly said because tr- traditionally governments procure and they have very high degree of specificity in terms of what they want to buy. And they buy, there's a lot of buying that's done in silos, whereas smart city projects tend to cross those silos. And you, because we're at sort of what we would call the bleeding edge, B-L-E-A-D-I-N-G, bleeding edge of technology, <laughs> it changes really quickly. And so today's great idea could be tomorrow's, you know, in the dustbin. And so how do we define those kinds of procurements so that we're focused on the outcomes that we want and the things that we want to have in terms of uh, key performance indicators so that we know we're successful and yet not lock ourselves into some older idea so that we have that flexibility, right? And I'm speaking as a taxpayer, not as a, uh, as a vendor or something when I say this. And we like to hear you speaking as a, as a taxpayer too. Cause that's, listen, everybody in our audience, Marlon and Jennifer and Andrew and Gert, everybody is living somewhere, right? And a lot of people would like to live in a smart city and they're learning about this, but many of them are also businesses that could become part of that public private partnership. So I think we're, we're approaching this on multiple levels for our, our global listenership. I'm ready to move to a new topic. We don't have that much time left, but I want to give Gerda an opportunity to talk a little more adapt. You already talked about transportation improvement initiative in Miami-Dade. And, and let's talk just a little bit more, Gert, about autonomous vehicles. I know you have a very strong thought about how they can enhance transportation for a city. So, and talking about data. So smart vehicles, autonomous vehicles, the data they're generating, how can they help improve smart city infrastructure? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, autonomous vehicles. I I'm really excited uh, about them. Not not because they are they are cool and high tech and and and, uh, and the talk of every town at the moment. But I really see them as a as a positive disruptive opportunity for cities. And and here's what I mean when I say that uh, the, for autonomous vehicles to make sense and add value in a city that they should be used as a city service. So, for instance, imagine uh, that uh, your bus, uh, the more people ask for a bus on their smartphones, the, 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 the more often these autonomous buses will run. And when nobody is asking for them, they will not have to run. 
and they can they will also not have a fixed route as they have today, but they can actually be dynamically routed, meaning they can they can come and pick you up where wherever you are, and they create their route as as where they are needed and when they are needed. This has a really a lot of uh, benefits to 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 improve transportation. But what I'm really um, excited about and why I say it's a disruptive opportunity is I really see them as the link. It's the, it's the first city service where these vehicles will need some kind of sensors and communication uh, capabilities in the streets of a, of a city so that they can link to the back-end systems of a city, so the traffic, traffic uh, the management system for the traffic lights or the dispatch of the transit agency and so on. So I see them as a disruptor, uh, as a disruptive opportunity to make cities better, and that should be the first, one of the first smart city services to be implemented citywide. Uh, could should be these uh, autonomous vehicles as shuttles, and by the same token, at the same time, we will get an infrastructure that provides. Uh, wireless coverage throughout the city on, on which then many more smart city services could, can be built. But mobility and traffic congestion and traffic congestion and people trying to get from A to B and, and, and trucks trying to get from A to B and, and, and double parking to de- deliver goods. So this congestion problem is really a big one. And uh, at the same time, autonomous shuttles can help uh, to solve it, to, to solve that. And again, but it's something that not a city cannot do alone. They need the, the cooperation with with uh, uh, the car, man- the vehicle manufacturers. They need uh, cooperation with uh, the companies providing uh, wireless coverage and they need uh, cooperation with companies providing the, the software, the databases, the data analytics, and also the hardware that needs to be uh, deployed into the city. So again, sounds to me like a perfect opportunity for public-private partnerships to make this happen. Thank you very much. You've already got me wanting to go out and sign up for a, for a positive, disruptive opportunity in a city near me. Oh, I'm in New York. We probably have it already. Marlon, we are two and a half minutes away from our crystal ball predictions round where I'm going to give everybody a minute. But Marlon, I, I have so much here in your notes that we didn't cover yet. Uh, why don't we talk just about, um, why don't you give us your top three tips, if you can, for evaluating a P3 success, public-private partnerships. Anything you'd like to share with us? I think you need to look at outcomes. Um, You need to look at non-monetary benefits, not just the monetary benefits. So citizens served, um, reduction in congestion, um, improved uh, reduction of smog, for example, because of reduced congestion congestion or something if you're talking about traffic and transportation. I believe there are um, the, the, the beauty of public sector and of cities is that you're not just looking at profit and loss. You're not just looking at financial results. You're able to look at a broader array of measures and take other stakeholders into consideration. So I, I think uh, doing some work up front to define some of those potential measures will go a long way to building support for smart cities. Thank you. Marlon, where, where does this all start? Who, who in the city, who? Would it be the mayor? Would it be the, the uh, defining board, one of the infrastructure boards, where they say, yeah, it's time for us to look for public-private partnerships. We can't do it all by ourselves. We're falling behind on funding. Our municipal services are not keeping up with our goals for this beautiful, smart city we've envisioned. We've got the roadmap, but we don't have the gas to get there. So where would that first initiative come from? Who in city government would say, yes, it's time for a P3? 
Well, I think you should direct that question at, uh, at Jennifer and Gert because they're the ones who, who actually are doing, doing it. Okay, so let's get a quick answer from Jennifer Sanders in Dallas. On, on where it needs to start and who needs to Yeah, where in. does it start? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, well, one, I, th- I think... I think it has to start at the top, right? So, I mean, we really looked at, you know, we, we, the mayor was very engaged from the beginning and then really, you know, Dallas is a, is a weak mayor form of government. So the city manager um, is kind of the chief operating officer running the city. And so having the buy-in from the mayor and the city manager and his senior team was, was critical at, at the inset and, and then in pulling in the, the various departments below. So we really tried to work from high-level buy-in to really working at the departmental and the citizen level, you know, almost in parallel immediately because it is so important to have kind of both the, the grassroots and the, and the treetops at the same time. But I think you do need to start at the top to have that mandate. I like that, grassroots and treetops. Gert Christian, I'll give you one minute to answer that question, then we'll do a lightning round for our crystal ball predictions. Gert, where does it start? Yes. Uh, it, it does start with the politic, with the political will. Ab- absolutely nece- necessary uh, to to have it that way. And in our in our experience, you know, this very very strong commitment of of doing something and then public public commitment, but also with uh, with bu- budget budget behind it is is very important. What is uh, the truth with uh, public organizations? You know, sometimes it takes some time from uh, political to to get, allow me the term, get the ducks in a row uh, in the departments and in the projects to actually get it going. And that is just uh, because uh, when there is a new political initiative, it's not that the the career experts uh, in the city departments that they have nothing to do and they just wait for a new project to come to their plate. And this transfer between political will and then actually um, the, the city departments get, getting ready to execute, that sometimes takes, uh, t- takes, can take a long time. Thank you very Mar- much. Mar- Mar- can, I, can I just jump in well, real quick? Andrew, Why you're going to jump in, but you're going to give me your prediction because it's time for the crystal ball. So you can make it a comment to Gert's comment, or you can give me a two-sentence prediction. Your choice, go. Prediction about what? What would you like? Prediction about what? Uh, where, where will the future of public-private partnerships be in 2020? That's my prediction. Okay. So uh, the, the quick uh, – I'm going to do a tiny bit of each quick quick comment to, to Gert was like, I agree completely with the importance of, of having the high-level political commitment. Having seen it in different iterations, I can say that it's it's got to be it's got to be vision, but it's got to be vision with enough space, not not so much ego, and enough space for other people that an actual partnership can happen. I've seen the mayor of a major metropolitan area in the United States talking about education reform as if it was his, his own personal personal accomplishment. It couldn't possibly be. In terms of the the, the long term. Um, I agree about the ideas of, 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 of the, the non-monetary outcomes. There are two things that jump, jump, are screaming at me, jumping into my mind. One is that a lot of this is going to have a tremendous impact on employment. And as we look at the world, uh, the world that we live in right now, there, there are fewer and fewer jobs that are needed for, you know, as, as, we, as we automate and we go to artificial intelligence, all the kind of things. And public-private partnerships and smart cities are going to be a driver of that. And I think it's going to be essential for us to try to figure out both for political reasons and also for economic reasons and quality of life reasons, how all of these smart people can live in the smart cities as their jobs may be going away for things like, uh, like uh, smart cars. So that's one, one thing. And then related is, is this idea of policy. 
I think we're in an interesting age where governments still are confronting a lot of, of, of issues that are new to them. A lot of technological issues, a lot of technological knock-ons like employment, and we don't yet have necessarily the policy skill or the policy experience to address them. And so I think that's going to be an area that we're going to want to really work together on, and there's a lot that we can learn from, 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 from stakeholders outside of government, private sector, the NGO sector, about how, uh, about the kinds of policies that we're, even academia, about kinds, kinds of policies that we're going to need and develop and the skills we're going to need to develop them. Thank you very much, Andrew. We have less than 30 seconds apiece left for the crystal ball. Jennifer Sanders, why don't you give me two-sentence prediction, P3s in 2020, two sentences, go. I, I think the key is going to be equity leading to economic development. And I'll just stop there. I think equity Thank issues you very much. will drive everything else. Mm-hmm. Good. Gert Christian, one sentence prediction. We're really out of time. Gert, prediction. <laughs> My one sentence is I 100% copy what Jennifer just said. Ah, uh, you're a dear. Marlon, you can close perfect. it out. Marlon, I got 45 seconds for you. Go ahead. Um, we're going to see P3s involved in that equity that leads to economic development through training and, and skills development for people. Well, my goodness, you really stepped up, all of you. Thank you for that brief and to the point. I want to thank Andrew Mack at AMC Global Consulting. Jennifer Sanders, feel better. You sounded beautiful, actually. Dallas Innovation Alliance. Gert Kristen at City Innovate Foundation. Marlon Zelkowitz at SAP. Marlon, quickly, what's next coming up in a couple of weeks for your main topic for this uh, next episode of this series? Uh, civic innovation, uh, startup in residence, and code hackathons and Code for America. We're going to talk about what role does civic innovation have for smart cities. I love it. Civic innovation for smart cities. Let's let's lead the title with hackathon. Everybody's going to want to listen to that one. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you so much to our wonderful panel, Kevin and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio. And here is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, right now, like Andrew Mack, like Jennifer Sanders, like Kirk Kristen, and like Marlon Zelkowitz. Talk to you tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern, here on the Business Channel with Coffee Break with Game Changers. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.